Hi, and welcome to She Geeks Out, a podcast where we geek out about all the things. I'm Rachel. And I'm Felicia. Oh my gosh, Felicia Jadzak, co-founder. Yes, that is my full name. I'm just not. I know what your middle name is. Rachel I didn't say what your middle name is. So that's well, I know your middle name too. So I guess we are on the same page. <laughs> no one's going to out the other person. And I appreciate that. Um, well, hi. Hi. What was the last time we did a podcast episode? Was it when I was in my closet? It might be. Literally, not theoretically or <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> Literally in my closet. I don't remember. I think that might have been it, but it was a while ago. It was yeah, last. Well, it's, yeah, what is time as we've talked about? Well, I'm glad that we're doing this. It's for a special occasion, but we you know, wanted to start to talk about the book, um, which is Beyond Leaning In by Melanie Ho. It was released on like March 8th. Days ago? Days. March 8th, yeah, for for International Women's Day. And we both read the book and we both loved it. And we were talking about, and we just decided to hit the record button because we're talking about how this book would have been so helpful for us. Uh, maybe when we were in our business settings. Uh, yeah, earlier in our career. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely be getting more into it with the author herself, but yes. um, we were just kind of chatting because, um, you know, just thinking about our reactions to the book and how it landed for us. And, you know, I don't think either of us can really say that we're in the beginning of our careers anymore, no, definitely for better not. or for worse. But, you know, I really, we were in agreement that um, this book would have been really helpful and I think in a really interesting way if we had been able to read this earlier in our careers because as as we were sharing um a lot of what Melanie discusses in the book with specific regards to gender dynamics and you know performance reviews and language and pay equity and all of these different dynamics that are happening at the workplace. You and I have lived through this, experienced pretty much almost everything that she covers in the book, I would say. And I was telling you, Rachel, that, um, you know, earlier in my career, I really felt like it wasn't that I wasn't speaking up or recognizing some of the things that had happened and or were happening to me, but I felt very alone in the sense that I didn't have language. I didn't have a contextual understanding. And I didn't have that like higher viewpoint awareness about how I fit into these bigger issues. And so I was saying it really felt like I was in my little rowboat trying to paddle against the stream by myself. And, you know, I feel like something like this book could have been really helpful, even just to give some context as to, you know, things that I was experiencing. Yeah, I agree. And I know we're a few years apart, but I, I think the conversations that people are having now are so drastically different than what they were talking about even 10 years ago. And I agree. I think for me, honestly, I don't think I was even aware of the level of um, systemic bias that was in existence and at play because, and what I love about this book is that it's not about the overt stuff. It's not about the egregious, obvious, you know, really big stuff. It's more about the micro 
aggressions, the smaller moments that are so easy to overlook and ignore um, and but can have a dramatic impact as a whole. Um, and so I really appreciated that because I definitely also did not have the language or the awareness to judge any behaviors that maybe felt a little uncomfortable or judgy or um, it, or inappropriate. I didn't I didn't even know that it was wrong uh, in any way. I was like, oh yeah, that's just the way things are. It's totally fine. Yeah, and I, I think what's really interesting, I mean, just to give a little bit of extra context for listeners so they understand what even is this book about, it's um, essentially like a fictional narrative of this company that is in, in a lot of ways failing. Um, and it follows a number of different characters through this, this book where, it's the head of the company, the CEO, who is a woman who's, um, you know, older. She's been very supportive in her career of supporting women. Um, there's a few uh, more seniors. Jun- they're, they're junior to the CEO, but they're in senior positions who are women and kind of like different pathways that they're taking in their careers and choices that they're making. And then there's also some younger people, interns and other staff members. And so it goes through each of these characters in this kind of bit of time in this company's life cycle. And I think what's really fascinating is there's certainly like the more blatant stuff and there's some moments that happen and there's some microaggressions too. But there's also, it's so um, insidious because, you know, you really come away from the book where you're like, okay, well, there's no like quote unquote bad guy or evil person or someone out to destroy these people. Right. Most, if not all of these people are very well-meaning in their own ways and they all want the same thing. But what's happening is they're, whether they're aware or not, even, you know, the tone and the words and how they're, you know, moving in the world. And even someone who is a woman leader who's being super supportive, she's being really damaging at the same time. And I think that's what's so, so tough about it. But, um, you know, something that really stuck with me was there's a moment in the book where, um, someone who's a little bit more senior, she kind of like sits in and is chatting with some interns. And there's this, this dynamic where um, there's a, a male intern and then a bunch of women. And the guy, it's basically, he expects the women to answer the phone for him. And they sort of say, this is a very common thing and we've been tracking it and the men never answer the phones and we're always supposed to answer. And, um, you know, basically they were like, well, what happens when we're not here? Like, is this just with us or is this something that plays out in their personal lives with their, you know, their family and their, their wives or girlfriends or mothers or whoever else is in their family. And then, um, you know, the line I'll actually read from it because it really stuck with me. I, I specifically bookmarked this was, you know, even if the the male intern starts the internship seeing the woman as equals, would he continue to believe that when he sees them receiving less important assignments or when he notices their ideas are less likely to be listened to than his? And I think that's a very subtle distinction, right? It's not necessarily like a conscious decision, but you start seeing how this gap starts widening from day one. And it really made me think of moments in my career where I went through the same academic program as a a guy who was a year behind me. We both got hired into the same exact team in um, my last company, but 
we, from the very beginning, started getting assigned different projects. And so I started getting assigned, you know, like the, the, the fluffy stuff, the cupcakes projects of the world. And he was getting assigned these really technical things. And I remember feeling really frustrated because I didn't understand why. And then I also saw his behavior changing. And this is a, you know, he's a friend of mine. So it wasn't like it was a deliberate, conscious belittling of me or like putting me down, but I definitely saw his behavior changing where I could feel myself being put into a box that I didn't want to be in and I didn't know how to get out of it. Mm. So yeah, that really stuck with me. I mean, the whole book really landed in a lot of ways. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That sucks. Um, And I'm hopeful that you know, between this book and I think just a growing awareness of these issues that there is, um, there can be more intentionality. But the other thing that I love about this book is that the title is very intentional beyond leaning in because- Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, you know, leaning in is all about, it's the responsibility for the women to to lean into this and to, you know, to advocate for themselves. But what, what I think resonates for both of us so much is that you know, when we started She Geeks Out, it was very much about, you know, wanting to create community to support women in tech and, and tech adjacent roles. Um, and what we realized is that even though we can do as much as we can and as, as women to advocate for ourselves, if there isn't someone on the other side of that desk that is able to listen uh, in an unbiased and a fair way, uh, then then it doesn't matter. The you can advocate for yourself all day long, but it is how it, that is viewed is what will be problematic. Mm-hmm. And I think, in addition to that, I'm going to yes and you. <laughs> um, it's also having that awareness as to you know the sort of like the water that we're swimming in, right? Because you can advocate or not advocate or do all the things from all the different perspectives, but if you don't have that larger contextual understanding and awareness, it's just gonna make your efforts, I think that much less impactful in the long run. Um, But, you know, the other thing that I really liked about the title and the sort of approach of it is, you know, obviously the elephant in the room is lean in. (laughs) And that was a huge movement and organization and text when it came out originally with Sheryl Sandberg. I I was at, I think it was at Grace Hopper. I was at that conference where she launched it. Mm -hmm. And so I sat, I was sitting in that audience, listening to her for the first time, talk about lean in and why she wrote it and what the book was all about. And even then, in you know, we have a different perspective on it today in 2021 than we did when it first came out. But even then, I remember thinking to myself, well, this sounds great. And I was really excited about it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I, at the time, was junior in my career and I was very single. And literally, one of her primary things was, find a good partner to support you. And I was like, well, that's great, but how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> wow. Where, where, where are these supportive partners waiting for me to pick one? Like, Felicia, way, you, <laughs> Felicia you just got to like put on some more makeup, wear, uh, I don't know, different clothes. I don't know. That's wild. I didn't know that that was. Yeah. Part. And I, and that was honestly like one of my biggest issues from yes 
the get-go, I was like, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, at the time, um, and again, I forget the exact year that Lean In came out, but I remember distinctly, this is probably around the same time you and I actually originally met and started what became She Geeks Out. And maybe you remember this too, but a lot of the conversations that we were having around gender at that point in the workplace was around the divide between working mothers and, and people, women who had families versus women who did not. And I remember it was something that I felt really strongly about because I was single. I had no family, no children. I didn't even have a pet at that point. I was very (laughs) unencumbered. But, um, you know, I remember just feeling like it was so important to talk about the fact that just because someone is younger or doesn't have children or, you know, whatever it might be, doesn't mean that they have to stay late or that they get the extra work or that it's okay for the parents to leave early, um, you know, and, and have different flex working schedules. Remember flex time mm-hmm. was like such a big cry that we were all pushing for. Oh my gosh. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting the struggles and, and things that we need to do to support families and, and parents, but you know, it was just such a divide where it was yeah. like, either you're a mother or you're not. And there was no nuance as to anything in between. And you and I, I think really a lot of what gave, um, a, a lot of what sort of gave that initial oomph to she out was the people we were bringing together were like, we don't want to talk about balancing work and home life because that's not what we're struggling with. <laughs> like we're not trying to figure out how to get our housework done. We're trying to figure out how to like be in this world. <laughs> and, you know, no one's thinking about us because we're not right out of college, but we're not a parent and we're not senior. So what's right. the, in the middle for us? And Yeah, that's such a great point. And it's interesting because I, and it's totally fair, obviously, um, you know, moms get the short end of the stick yes. all, all oh, the time. I mean, a hundred percent. And, and are also, it's what, especially this past year, yes. like so many folks have seen all the, the research that the horrific research that's come out. And it is, it's really, it is interesting to think about. There is that huge sector of, of, of women who leave the workforce because they have, not been able to um, been afforded the ability to have that flex work schedule and 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 uh, and take care of their kid and maybe share some more responsibility with with their partner. Um, and then on top of that, I think the other aspect that people sometimes forget to, to mention is that people leave this industry because it is not welcoming. You know, and I feel like that gets left out of the conversation. And despite the um, the strong efforts of of companies, uh, in their words, um, sometimes it doesn't always translate to action. And so I think that if you don't see yourself, you don't see a place for yourself, then um, you know it's hard to it's hard to stay. Yeah. yeah, and this is what I really to bring it back to the book is though I really enjoyed reading it because. Um, it gives you sort of like that inside look as to, you know, like we all know the research, right? We know the numbers, we know the data, we know we can say all the good things, but it comes down to like conversations Mm -hmm. that people are having, right? And that's something that's really tricky to pin down. And that's what I really liked about the book is that for me, I was like, I feel like I've been given an inside, like the fly on the wall treatment for probably a million conversations that were had about me or, you know, my peers or in organizations that I worked at. And there's a moment in the book where um, there's a few senior leaders that are gathered together to decide who's going to get assigned to some 
big international project. And they basically decide for these three different um, employees whether or not they will want to take the project. And they're like, no, this one, I mean, this is definitely a line that we probably have heard a lot, but they're like, this lady just had a kid. She's not going to want to travel. This person has uh, her husband's really high up, so he's not going to want to move. And then this person, um, you know, is fine because he's a dad and he's fine. Like his wife can take care, like whatever it was, his wife and I forget what the the specifics were, but you know, it's just like, that's how it happens. Right. And so they assign some random person to the, to the big plum thing. And the person who's listening and, you know, kind of thinking through this with this new perspective is like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. The person whose husband has a high power job, he works for an international company. It's going to be super easy if they want to move. The person who just had a kid, like, you know, we don't know she doesn't want to travel. Maybe she can't wait to get out of the house. And then the person who, you know, is the the father, his wife can't move because <laughs> she's stuck here. Like, not stuck here, but like she's entrenched in the area they were in. I'm like, so it's just like, that's how it works, right? And it's just so insidious and really yeah. hard. Like, that's the stuff that's really hard to change. Those, it's not even like a behavior. It's just the interactions that people are having. Yeah. And it's that intention versus impact, which she talks about as well. And I, for one, hope that, um, that companies and teams use this book. I think it was, it'd be a great book club book for, yes. I think it'd like be an ERG or very rich conversations, I think can come out of it. So one thing that the book touched on briefly, but I really, it really landed for me because I'm thinking a lot about this is at one point, the, one of the main characters is talking with someone else who runs a different company and they're talking about, you know, how to like, how the world is changing and how they can support younger woman and all this good stuff. And, um, you know, the, they're both women CEOs. And so one of them says, I told this woman yesterday that the only way women can advance in business is by taking on more stereotypically masculine traits. And that's definitely a theme that comes Mm. up with the generational divide in this book. And I think we've seen this as well playing out in real life where women in an older generation who are more advanced in their careers, you know, a lot of them got ahead by fitting into a very masculine dominant, you know, way of being. And even in the book at one point, the the CEO, she tells another woman, she's like, I would have never worn that lavender blouse. It's too feminine. And the younger woman's like, are you kidding me? I'm wearing a suit and the color of the blouse is not going to help me get ahead. And so I've been thinking about this a lot. And the reason this, this really stuck out for me is because even today, where I think the conversation has evolved so extensively from when you and I first started really thinking about this stuff and getting into it. Even today, what really annoys me and bugs me is that we're still operating within the patriarchal framework. Mm. And so you talk about things like, you know, what skill sets are desired and what it takes to get ahead and how do you be successful? And we're looking at it through a male lens. And so, you know, it's not even like cultural differences, but things like, you know, speak up and, you know, the whole, the lean in, Mm -hmm. like all this stuff. And why can't we reframe it from a feminine approach. And so like, what does it take to have to like basically dismantle the the frameworks that we're operating in? And how, what would it look like if we looked at getting ahead in business from a feminine perspective? Not even a feminist perspective, although I'm down for that, but like a feminine perspective. Well, and I'm going to blow your mind 
what about a gender neutral perspective? That's too, exactly. Right? Like what would reimagining, what if it wasn't even about that? What if it's just like, Hey, bring your best self. And you know what? These are the things that we need for a person to do their job. And that's what we're going to focus on. It's not going to be about what they wear. It's not going to be how they talk. It's not going to be, you know, what time of day they particularly do that work. It's going to be, here's the thing we wanted to get done. And yeah, I mean, and in the book, they, the way they illustrate a little bit of this is um, again, one of the older characters she's thinking about when she came up in, in the world and, you know, it, it behooved her to do a lot of like data number sharing and, and talking about the numbers. And then when mm-hmm. she tried to talk about relationships, which is something that's seen as traditionally less masculine. She was kind of like shut down and was basically told, don't do this. Otherwise you're not going to get ahead. And yes, absolutely. Like beyond the gender binary is that ultimate next step too. Um, You know, but it's just, it really frustrates, frustrates me sometimes to think like we're still like, you know, we've been talking so much, especially this past year with COVID and a lot of the social unrest and injustices, but what does it look like? Like what does true liberation from oppression look like? Mm-hmm. And it's, it takes, we have to get out of what we've been operating in. I have also been seeing a lot of people talk about things like, you know, um, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And, and then I think that next step is, well, I don't know if this is the table for me. Maybe we don't need a table. Maybe we need a new table. We need a different table. We need not a table at all. There's and I think no that's, that's the mentality I really want to like lean into for lean into for uh, 2021. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but I would like to talk a little bit about Clubhouse. I think um, we could just sort of be like a little DI roundup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kick us off. Sure. So Clubhouse, if anyone hasn't heard by now, I would be very surprised, but essentially it is a 2021 version of a party line. Um, <laughs> that is an app that is specific to iPhone that is audio only where people have conversation. Um, that is also invite only. Um, so you have to be invited and then they're cool if you get invited into these things and it's growing in popularity. So that is what Clubhouse is. Um, I was initially annoyed because I was, someone told me about it and they were like, you should join Clubhouse. It's going to be amazing. And I was like, I can't, I have an Android. So <laughs> that, that right off the bat was like, oh, okay, well, that's a thing. And then I can't remember if Felicia, you talked with me first. I think you mentioned first around the issues around folks who are hard of hearing and deaf that can't use this platform at all. Um, And then uh, someone sent me an article from Forbes, which we can include in the show notes that goes deeper into the issues around exclusivity. Um, But yeah, I I am fascinated by the fact that I shared this within a variety of my circles and it's essentially been crickets like people even at my LinkedIn I get a fair amount of engagement on there and I think I got one like and no comments which is very unusual for when I post stuff so I don't know if it's some AI algorithm trying to block me from doing this or if people are <laughs> like Horowitz is like <laughs> <laughs> exactly not interested nope um or if it's like um if we have to question how much um, we really value inclusivity, 
um, because this thing is not only exclusive. So how much do people really do like exclusive still? And then also things that are just new and trendy. Mm-hmm. And cause we're not talking about people really sacrificing. We have a million platforms that we can all engage on at this point. And if you don't want to look at a screen, guess what? You can turn video off on zoom and still hear everyone. So I don't get it. I sound like an old lady, but those are my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for for sharing, first of all, and for kicking off this conversation because Clubhouse is the latest trendy, hot new thing on the block. And I will, I think you and I, Rachel, are really similar in this way that we resist hopping on board the latest and greatest. (laughs) We are both um, still watching the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. We did not watch it when it first came out. For various reasons. Um, We both are new to Animal Crossing. We're a year (laughs) behind literally like the rest of the world. So I think we share that that, um, propensity to resist hopping. It makes me sad because I actually consider myself like pretty like on like I like new tech, but you're right now. I feel like a Luddite. You're like you know, it's not true for literally every single thing, but I think that's something that we share a little bit of. And so I will say from my perspective, you know, Clubhouse, I of course was aware of it, but I kind of resisted it because I'm like, I I already have a lot of stuff to do in my personal life. I don't have time for a new platform. It's going to fade away, but I did recently get on it. And the other thing too, is I just don't like the idea of having to hunt for an invite. It felt gross to me. And so, you know, I'm part of a lot of different like Facebook groups and whatnot. And I would always see people saying, Oh, I have five invites. And then there's a hundred comments. Just like, I don't want to be part of that grubbing for an invite to something that I don't even know what it is. But I did get an invite um, in the last like couple weeks. And so it was, uh, you know, basically an organization that I'm tangentially part of. They were trying to bring people in to have conversations. And so I figured, why not? So I got on. I do have an iPhone. So I got on. I poked around. I listened to a couple chats or whatever they call them. And I honestly haven't really been on that much since. Now, first, I think. Yeah, there's definitely some accessibility issues for sure, which I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to anyone. But by nature, it's an audio app that's designed for people who can hear. And there's no support for people who have hearing disabilities or who are hard of hearing or have are deaf. And so that's that's not a great thing, you know, and I have hearing aids and I'm hard of hearing. And I would say I can I think I can pick up most of what people say if I don't have closed captions or subtitles available to me, but it does make it easier. And definitely for television, I can't really watch TV or movies without closed captions. I just miss too much. So, you know, it's something where I can still participate if I really wanted to in these conversations, but I probably am missing some of it. And like you said, it's a party line. So there, it just seems like a big free for all. There's just, there's very little, I mean, there's moderation, of course, but there's just a lot of talk and it gets really confusing. And again, I'm just talking about my experience, but because I do have the hearing disability, I know my brain processes sometimes slower. So what I hear, I don't always understand. And it can take a few moments or even a minute or two to sort of like click together. And when you have, you know, five, 10 people all talking over each other at once, that doesn't really lend itself for understanding. Um, 
But, you know, there's also issues around the fact that a lot of disability um, advocates and, and people who have disabilities and who are active and allies are saying, you know, this app was not like they don't care. And I think that's the bigger issue is like they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because it's designed like the actual literal design is to keep people out. Exactly. The thing is that, you know, you are keeping large amounts of people out that aren't, it's not just about, do they have an Android or an iPhone or do they care or do they not care or whatever, you know, it's, they're keeping people out who might want to be part of it, who could get, who have the invites or who have the technology and they just can't literally engage with the platform. And, you know, I'm part of this group, which is called Diversability. It's a disability community online, which has been, it's a really great resource if anyone is out there who um, is interested in, in partaking, who has a disability. And they've been having some interesting conversations because they do have, um, I think the founder and some other people from the group are on Clubhouse. And so they've been talking about, you know, come join us. We're having conversations. And when I joined myself, there are quite a few different disability focused groups that are having conversations and are active and um, the rooms, whatever they call them, <laughs> that are disability focused. And that's really interesting to me. And the conversation is really around this exact issue. You know, um, is it like, like sort of the chicken and the egg, right? Like, is it better to to join in something like this that's not accessible to push them to be more accessible or to help them or, you know, provide advice or insight. Or, you know, there's also people who are saying, this is great because this is a place where I'm finding community and that's important. You and I know that. But then on the flip side, there is the other side of it too, which is it's not accessible still. (laughs) And, you know, and I think this is where you see, I was joking about Anderson Horowitz, but they are the backers, right? And so I read something on Twitter the other day, which is like, you know, do you think that at any point in the process when they were signing that check, do they care about anything related to this? No, absolutely not. Yeah. And that speaks to a larger issue. So anyway, I'm venting about all sorts of No, stuff. no, I agree. I agree with everything. And I'm just like, like the whole thing of like, oh, finally, people have a place where they can be have a community. And I'm just like, I'm a little eye rolly because I cannot think of a pocket on the internet that does not have a place for it somewhere. Um, and so to me, it's just, it's another platform. Like there, there are a million platforms. There's diff- a lot of different ways and anybody who wants any little sub group of anybody can find a little home. I, I'm, I'm sure there are some, um, I'm sure I'm making a blanket statement that's not always true, but you can use other platforms to create this um, unless you want to create an environment that is specifically designed to be exclusive for folks and then which seems very strange to me but well I I think I think that's what it is though I know and that is what is so problematic which is why I'm like okay I get it like you know the tech industry is very problematic in many ways but to me I'm like look it's 2021 if there is one word I have not like I've heard the word inclusivity so much I can't tell you how many times I've heard this word inclusivity right and it's something that everybody cares so deeply about but when it comes to this platform, when it comes to one particular tool, it seems to me like trendiness and exclusivity wins over inclusivity. And I mean, it's just wild to me. Well, 
Yes, I agree. And I think a lot of it ties back to what we were talking about earlier from the beyond leaning in conversation Mm -hmm. around how, you know, how we value things and how our systems are set up. And, you know, there are a ton of VC and angel investors and tech people on Clubhouse. And we know that VC and investing is predominantly still male and white male, right? And so it's not exclusively 100%, but that is a huge population. And it's, there's, we can go into all the data later about, you know, who's getting funding and all that good stuff. But um, what I found really interesting was that with that in mind, so when, and you don't know this because you didn't get onto Clubhouse, but <laughs> when you sign up for Clubhouse, like a lot of other platforms, you know, you, you get in, you create your name, blah, blah, blah. And then they give you a list of people that they have you pre-follow. And, you know, and again, like you and I are, I think, very tech, tech savvy. Um, but for me, I was like, I want to follow all these people. So I like, <laughs> un- and, and it's not, it's not user-friendly. You have to manually go in and unclick every single person. And it's like 50 people. And so because I had to manually do this with my little finger, um, (laughs) I was looking at each of the people that they wanted me to pre-follow. And this is the thing with Clubhouse is that unlike other platforms that you may be familiar with, there is no directory and there's no central area. So basically when you get in, the only way to find groups and people is by inputting your contacts, these pre-followed people, and then you start seeing pop-ups of um, conversations that are happening. And then you basically, it's sort of like a little labyrinth. You can like follow a person and you see who they follow. And then you see what groups are they part of, and then you join them. And it just keeps going like that. But there's no way to know what else is out there because there's no directory. And so if you're pre-following these people, you have to look and see who are these people that I am listening to Mm. because a lot of the people are tech. A lot of them were men. A lot of them were white. Not all. And I will. I do want to note that Clubhouse, I believe, um, has BIPOC founders. And you know, a lot of the early, earlier sort of buzz and press was because it was being built as a community where BIPOC people were gathering and having conversations. So I don't want to negate any of that because that's also an important point. But also, and this is a whole other thing to bring in that we haven't touched on yet in our conversation, um, a lot of people, right-wing, mm-hmm. you know, um, political people with some really, um, you know, really damaging viewpoints and concerning conversation topics. And, you know, and so there's like this underbelly, but what is happening is that anyone who's signing in, who doesn't have the wherewithal or the know-how or the tools to unfollow or only follow who they choose to follow is automatically getting rolled into this group of people that now, whether you like it or not, that's who you're getting access to and that's who you're hearing from and who you're listening to. So that's a whole other issue. And again, it comes down to, you know, accessibility and user design and intentionality and how they're designing the platform and ultimately what are the goals for this platform. Well, I just hope that everyone just pays a little bit more attention and just, just look within if it's needed. That's all I'm saying. Well, I I can tell you, I have it. I don't really use it. (laughs) I haven't deleted it because I I do think there is, it's interesting in some ways still. And I think there's, there's like, I want to keep on, you know, tabs on what's, what kind of conversations are happening out there. But um, yeah, it's not really something that I'm like, 
spending a lot of time on, but it is interesting to see who is. So, well, maybe in six months we can revisit and see if the platform has evolved. Yeah, for sure. And and see, uh, see how that goes. But I loved this conversation. Um, and I always love having conversations with you. I know me too. And, you know, I, I hope that we get to do these more often because there is so much that's happening and I know it's hard for us to sometimes just be like, Oh, let's just hit the record button. Maybe other people will find this valuable. Um, but yeah, if you found this valuable, let us know. Cause yeah. we're just chatting. Yeah. And if you did not find this valuable, also let us, let know. us know. <laughs> Tell us we like feedback. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we did it. I think we wrapped this baby up. And uh, we will hope that you follow us on all the places and stay in touch with us. Uh, We are always doing new and exciting things. I like to think, Um, maybe not launching new tech platforms, but that's okay. We're doing other things. Uh, And maybe maybe in the future, we'll get that sweet, sweet VC money. Just kidding. That's (laughs) not my jam. That's not our jam. All right. Talk soon. Right. We're live. We're not live. We're recording. Um, hello, Melody. Hello. Hello. Hello, Felicia. Hi. Hi. This is Rachel, and we are so excited to have Melanie Ho here. Melanie is the author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity, and What Organizations Are Up Against, a unique business book written as a novel, which we both, Felicia and I, read and love and can't wait to talk about. But I also wanted to share that Melanie is the founder of Strategic Imagination, a firm dedicated to drawing on the power of the imaginative arts to drive transformational change, and is a really good artist who makes really good comics, web comics. So welcome, Melanie. Um, And let's just get this party started. Tell us your story, your personal history, how you got here, uh, uh, where you are today, your origin story, all that good stuff. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And my origin story is that, well, my recent origin story is that I did a lot of soul searching at the beginning of the pandemic. Suddenly I wasn't traveling. I was able to sit still for the first time in I really don't know how long. And just thought about the passions I'd had for a long time. I had most recently, before my pandemic soul searching, was a senior vice president at a research technology and consulting firm in higher education in K-12 called EAB. And I loved my job, but there was something that was missing. And I found myself continuing to return to actually the interests I had when I was younger And I just loved the power of literature and art and film to change how people think. And I had gotten a PhD in English. And then I had gone on to this other career that I enjoyed and I was learning a lot from. But I found myself, I kept circling back to those older interests, even in the last few years in my consulting work with college and university leaders, finding that college and university leaders were getting stuck when they were trying to imagine bigger, bolder transformations for their organizations or their strategic plans. And I had found that a number of Fortune 500 companies like Boeing and Nike and Lowe's were hiring science fiction writers and comic book artists to help them envision, envision bolder futures. And I just loved that. And so all of this kind of swirling in my head 
over the summer, I decided to found my own firm called Strategic Imagination, really all about when organizations are stuck, when individuals are stuck, how do we use the power of the arts and fiction in order to help people get unstuck? And my first project for that has been Beyond Leaning In. That's so exciting. And I didn't realize that strategic imagination was so young. So we'll definitely have to dig into that a little bit more. But first, let's talk about the book because it just came out, what, uh, two days ago, I want to say. Yeah. And um, as Rachel mentioned, we both read it and we loved it. But maybe you can start us off for listeners by sharing a high level overview or like a synopsis of the plot of the book. Cool. And thank you so much for reading it. As as a new author, I have to say, I'm just so excited whenever anybody (laughs) has read my book. The book tells the story of actually multiple characters, but it begins with Deborah. She is the CEO of a tech company. It's a startup. She's a baby boomer. She has worked hard across her career to smash all those glass ceilings and to lift up other women. And her company is actually known as a good place for women to work. They've won awards and she's been profiled. And so she's really puzzled at the beginning of the book when she realizes that they they do the numbers, they do an engagement survey, they find that at senior levels, women are let's engage the men. And they're also departing at higher rates than men when they look at their retention data. And so it's a little bit of a mystery as Deborah is trying to understand what's that disconnect she keeps trying to understand and she feels like the younger women, uh, those in their 30s, 40s, advancing into leadership are kind of biting their tongues and she doesn't know why. And so she enlists the help of a younger woman named Cassandra and kind of does a reverse mentorship where Cassandra helps her understand the perspective of rising generations. You know, I think it was so interesting that you chose to make it a fictional story. um, And I would love to hear what inspired you to write it that way and what your process was for writing the book. There were so many things that made me want to write it as fiction. So maybe I'll begin with, I started writing the, I started thinking about the book back actually in 2013 when Lean In came out. And I had just moved into a senior management position at work. And I was really excited that this book came out by a Facebook executive because it seemed like everybody was talking about it. And maybe this would bring attention to the issues for women in leadership. And yet it brought attention, I think, to all the wrong things. Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In is very specific that she's not with one book trying to solve the entire problem of gender equity. She has one specific message that is in her book. She says there are other things you also need to look at. And yet it felt like not just corporate America, but when I would talk to friends at other industries too, nonprofit education, et cetera, just like organizational leaders everywhere had taken Sandberg's book as this shorthand that now the only problem that we needed to solve was women needed to lean in and it put all the blame on women. And because I was at this critical moment in my career where I had just moved into a senior position and I suddenly really wanted to understand the issue. So I, uh, like Felicia, I'm an avid reader and just obsessively started reading everything I could find. And it's so interesting. There's so much research out there. And then I thought, well, I, I wish everybody would read this but they're probably not going to, because at the end of a long day, most people aren't going to pick up all these tomes of research on gender equity. And so I wanted to write something that was more digestible and fun to read, that you'd enjoy it and get invested in the characters, but also that hopefully would mean that men would read the book too, not just women, because we need men in the conversation. 
And then the more I started writing it as a novel, the more I realized that there are all these other benefits of a novel because every single diversity, equity, inclusion training I'd been in, people would often shut down because it's hard to deal with all those difficult emotions. And it's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes, especially when you have difficult emotion. Then there's research by psychologists on how novels can help develop empathy and how novels can give us that critical distance. And so I felt like a novel could help make any research more digestible by getting you invested in characters. But for uh, issues around equity, there might be these extra benefits. Yeah, I, I really loved the novelization approach. And I will say when I first started reading it, I was like, mm. <laughs> just to be yeah. very honest, because yeah, you know, so frequent, yeah. <laughs> it's, you start with a, a, a staff roster, which is basically the list of characters. And I was like, what is this? Um, because I feel like we are used to more of the, you know, like the research approach mm-hmm. or, you know, like your viewpoint and what you've learned and now you're sharing it. But I think what I really liked about it was A, it was really approachable, but also B, and this is something Rachel and I were chatting about earlier, um, is that a lot of what came out of those characters interacting with with each other is the really subtle nuances that is really hard to speak to in a dry research paper, you know, where you can say, here's the data and here's the numbers, but you don't actually see how that plays out in a conversation where both people might have good intent or they mean well, but then it's still a damaging result. And I think that is laid out really, really nicely and effectively in the book. So I, I love that part of it. But I did mention that list of characters and you've got like 20, 25 characters in the book. Um, And so I would love to know a little bit more about how you came up with those characters, Um, you know, especially for the ones that maybe you don't share similar identities with or um, maybe haven't had the same exact experiences with. Um, What was that process like in terms of coming up with the people that populated the novel? So I started with the characters who were actually least like me, Deborah, the CEO, and Jack, the CFO, who are both in their 60s, and I'm 41. And I started with them because I wanted to put myself in the perspective of leaders who are trying to run a company is hard enough. They're going from 30-minute meeting to 30-minute meeting to 30-minute meeting all day. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> And they, their intentions are good. And so I, I really wanted the, a lot of my goal with the book was to show that despite our best intentions, this is just really, really hard stuff. And the fact that it's hard stuff is why we need a book length novel or any book length project to really understand it. Because so much of our impulse, I think at work is to look for the quick solution And I talk at the end of the book about the whack-a-mole problem and not just about gender or equity in general. Organizations find the the quick win, they want to kill the problem and it's going to pop up somewhere else. And so part of my goal with the novel and with the characters was to show how hard it is to solve things. That to me needed to start with just getting into the perspective of Deborah and Jack. So I started with them and then I went to the character who's probably most like me, uh, who's Cassandra, who's Deborah's reverse mentor. And, and after the three of them, then it, it sort of populated out, like I needed to give Cassandra some friends 
and I needed to give Deborah a team. <laughs> and- <laughs> this Cassandra had some friends because yeah, she was dealing with some hard stuff. In the company. Yeah, <laughs> and her friends are her lifeline. Like for many of us, it works. Mm-hmm. How did you? How did you decide? to uh, to give away particular types of information about the different characters? So I, it was a lot of the decisions that I needed to make around the characters was how much information to give about each character. And there are things that made that more complicated, I think, for a novel that's about work and that's trying to combat people's unconscious biases. Because for example, I didn't worry when I was giving a male character a girlfriend or a wife. And actually with all of the male characters, they learn things <laughs> through their girlfriends and wives. Mm-hmm. With the female characters, I thought, you know, if I give a female character a romantic partner who is a man, then suddenly they're going to be defined that, by that relationship and people mm-hmm. are going to read into everything going on with them at work. Oh, is that because this is happening at home in a way they wouldn't ever do with the male characters. Mm-hmm. And so I had this moment of just being very conscious of what are the assumptions the reader comes in with and how is that assumption going to help me? How is that assumption going to hurt me as far as wanting them to get into the story? And then another question for me was just how much detail to give about the characters and actually um, there's very little physical description mm-hmm. of any character. And what's interesting to me is sometimes I'll ask people what they think different characters look like and whatever character they identify most with, they just think looks like them right. like, unconsciously. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of, uh, to me, an interesting thing about fiction, maybe in comparison to nonfiction, is that it allows you to make meaning for yourself Mm. And what I actually love is the conversations I'm having with early readers where they've made meeting that I didn't intend at all. And so people actually have come up with backstories and features for <laughs> these characters and things going on in their lives. Wow. And it's really fun. But that's what I I hope readers will do. And, and actually I've been in conversations with folks about, okay, like how do we formalize that? Um, you know, have visual artists, for example, be able to draw scenes mm. and and draw in the gaps. Or it's like fan fiction. Take take a scene that you just read. If you change the location, put it in your industry, put it in your office. Um, mm-hmm. Change the main character in this scene. What does that do to it? Yeah, absolutely. Love it. So I wanted to ask a question about, so you feature a tech company. Obviously, tech companies are sort of the focus areas of focus for a lot of people when we talk about this work. Um, But we, it's interesting, we do a a lot of work with a whole variety of industries. And so I'm curious how you think, how translatable you think it is to different industries. Um, I I think the sad thing is how translatable it is. (laughs) The same challenges women face them in every single industry. And that includes, you know, not just for-profit industries, but not-for-profit industries. It actually originally the, so talking about my writing process, the first really super messy draft of this book, I started during NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. And 
the point of NaNoWriMo is that you finish a bad draft. I mean, it doesn't have to be bad, but mine was bad. <laughs> you finish a draft during the month of November by just committing to writing lots of words every day. And so my NaNoWriMo draft, because I felt like there was a message I wanted to say about how these same challenges are true for women across industry, I actually had multiple companies. <laughs> and uh, wow. the the character Cassandra, who is the reverse mentor in in this the final version, she actually is kind of visiting company to company and seeing the differences, but actually more than that, the similarities. And so mm -hmm. I really wanted the reader to see that. I guess a few things out of that. Um, I had a book coach who um, finally looked at the book and said, this is very confusing. And I also realized that part of what I wanted to show is the cumulative effect of kind of like the small slights that women encounter across any given day and also how a bunch of characters are all interconnected and how that interconnectedness means that you know, this kind of, this event over here can actually have an impact on the business over here. And so to be able to both probably make it easier for the reader to follow, but also to show that interconnectedness, realize that it all had to be at one company. And it happened to be, Deborah was the character I wanted to stick with, and she was the CEO of a tech company. So it became a tech company. Perfect. And I, I we couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is sad how translatable it is. <laughs> Um, across industry. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think too, um, you know, we loved that the book was really specifically about those nuanced issues as opposed to a larger issue that's super obvious or an industry specific issue necessarily. And so in the book, you do introduce some terminology around things like intent versus impact, microaggressions. And so maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that relates back into the workplace. So intent versus impact is a concept I first learned from my former colleague, Jesse Bridges. She's the chief diversity officer at, at EverFi. And I'll share a personal story. It was actually after something I experienced where in a meeting, a, a, a man who actually had been probably the best mentor and advocate I've had in my career had undermined me. And it, it was this you know, terrible experience because in the moment, I don't think he was thinking, he was busy with something else. And he said something in a tone that was just incredibly patronizing. And I felt it and I could see a few other women in the room probably feeling it and I managed to recover. But it, it felt terrible, because, partly because he was someone who had been such an advocate for me. And actually, even though this was pre-pandemic, it was recorded on Zoom because about half the folks were in the office and half the folks were remote. And so I, I sent it to um, Jesse, who was the chief diversity officer at, at um, this company that we both had previously worked at and asked her to listen to it. And, and she helped me understand intent versus impact because I had that moment that women often have the, am I being too sensitive? You know, am, am I? And she said, no, this is, this is what's going on here. There's a difference between intent and impact. And yes, this gentleman's intent was entirely good. He's your advocate. He didn't mean to do that, but this was still the impact. And that's what we need to resolve. And her telling me that both reframed how I thought about my own experience, but also helped me have the language to have a conversation with this mentor of mine, because I was able to say to him, 
I understand all these reasons why your intent was good. Now you need to understand all the reasons why the impulse was not good. And so that's a theme that really runs throughout the book. One thing I say in the preface is that none of the characters here are villains. They're all people who want their organization to succeed. They want a more equitable workforce. They care about each other, but often they unintentionally do things that have a bad impact. Yeah, that was something that really landed for me too, because there is definitely one, maybe two characters that I think you could theoretically have set up as the villain. Mm -hmm. And even with those characters, you feel, you feel for them. (laughs) And I think that's, that's what really, I think that's such a huge, um, sort of impact of the book is that it shows that it's not about someone being a horrible person. It's about how damaging these little things can build up to over time. And even someone who's damaging workplace relations, like they're coming from a whole perspective and have stuff going on with them and they're fitting into different systems and tropes and things like that. And so that was, that was really interesting for sure. Um, I love that choice. Yeah, agreed. And plus, and I talked a little bit about this as well. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit to what I think one of the most interesting parts of the book is the generational differences mm-hmm. also. Um, Felicia and I, Felicia refers to herself as an elder millennial. Um, I am a Gen Xer. I think, Melanie, you you may be uh, very- I'm a, I claim Xennial. Zennial, nice. I love it. I yeah. love it. I'm, okay. I'm theoretically the, I think the last year of Gen X, but I actually feel like a millennial. So yeah. I just say I'm the Zennial. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So we're, we're all relatively close in age. And I think that um, it's just so interesting to have the language and the tools that are available to folks now. And Flush and I were reflecting a little bit on, you know, what if we had had these tools uh, back in, in our day when we were, because we, we didn't. And so there was such a, there's such a, a benefit that, uh, the, the current generations have, uh, to have these tools and have this language. And yet another part that I think resonated with, with us very much was around the interns who are the youngest in there, and they're still dealing with some of these issues. I'm just curious what, even though we're all sort of more, I really don't want to use the word, so I'm not going to say it, but we're more awake and aware to these issues. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yet we still struggle with them. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on um, what your hopes are for maybe the use of this book and how you see uh, not just the generations like ours, uh, who are sort of more in leadership roles, but the folks that are coming up um, handling this work? I, th- I think a lot about the book is getting what's talked about behind closed doors out into the open, because I think that's a, a big difference too, just in terms of as people advance up the ladder, they become more aware. And I've had, a, I've had conversations with baby boomer women who have read my book, who have daughters who are in their 20s and and early 30s and saying that actually their daughters are still at the point in their careers where they're starting to see the challenges but aren't yet seeing them enough to actually realize they're there and they think it won't happen to them mm-hmm. and it will happen to them and so i i hope that part of the value of the book is 
really helping people in different places with different things. So when I think about the woman who's in her, and, and it's not just about age, right, where you are in your career, the woman who is in you know, middle to senior management and has started to experience the things here, they, it helps them make sense of what's happened to them, gives them new frameworks, gives them vocabulary to have conversations with others. Uh, for men, and I've had a number of early readers who are men, and those are fa fascinating, wonderful conversations. And I think for men, it is actually helping them understand the challenges that women face, that even if they have close female friends and family and colleagues, they still aren't hearing all of the things that are discussed behind closed doors. There's still a part of it that they don't have access to, and this actually gives them that access. And then I think for... Um, for women who are starting out in the workplace, it's uh, if you know what might happen to you, then you in the moment can help mitigate the risks or prevent it even uh, sometimes from happening. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that because it's it's just uh, I really I'm I'm Felicia and I were chatting a little bit about the hope for this book. We could see it be used in teams and mm -hmm. certainly with the folks that we work with as ways to foster some really meaningful discussion. Yeah. Um, so in addition to the launch of the book itself, you also have been rolling out this series of web comics. And um, Rachel knows this. I don't think you know this, Melanie, but it's like my favorite thing in the world. So I'm a little bit obsessed with them. And I love that it's not just the book, but there's a visual aspect to it too. And that it kind of condenses a lot of these big topics into these digestible Instagram posts and, and visuals. And so tell us more. So was that something that you did because you wanted to support the book? Were you already doing art around this stuff beforehand? Where did all that come from? This is another pandemic hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Amazing. I feel like you were very productive in your pandemic. And meanwhile, I just watched all of Netflix. <laughs> I know. So I mean, I'm a little jealous, not going to lie. <laughs> there are definitely phases of the pandemic. Right? <laughs> and it's funny because I'll talk to friends and they can identify the, the phase. So, hey, remember that phase where you were doing, do you know that app quarantine chat? I had this phase where for a month, all I would talk about to anybody was is quarantine chat. It's, it's this app that connects you randomly to a stranger somewhere else. What? In the world. Oh, I would the not first want I that. have heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I have phases of the pandemic and that's amazing. I had a phase in, when was it? I think it was in September. Oh, when it, it was in September. It was actually right after I, I left my, my day job and nor, you know, I think if it weren't a pandemic and I had had left a you know corporate job that was pretty demanding I would have taken a few weeks and traveled and since I wasn't going to do that I took a bunch of arts art classes and I've always done a little bit of art here and there but I had never really thought about putting anything out of mind into the world beyond maybe um, you know here's an Instagram post but not a serious one just like oh here's my paint and sip <laughs> and so I I ended up taking a few art classes and one of them was a comics class and it was taught virtually from New York and I really enjoyed it. And then I kind of forgot about it because that phase was done. <laughs> then about two months ago, as I was 
finishing up all the production details for Beyond Leaning In. And I was just thinking about, well, what's a good way to get some of these ideas out in an even more accessible? And I hope that as a novel, it's accessible and digestible. But what if you only have a minute to look at something? What's a way to get that out? And I remembered that previous phase I had of the, the <laughs> pandemic where I was taking a comics drawing class. And so amazing. thought I would do that. <laughs> I love that. I feel like, again, I'm like, oh, I need to like rechannel my phases and productivity because all, again, all I did was eat and watch TV. But um, I used to do web, or not web comics, I used to do a little comics myself, but it was just about my, my disastrous single life. So <laughs> it's been long dormant. But um, I do love that it's, it is, as you said, digestible. It's another way to process the, the information. And it's just, they're really fun too. I love your style. So I agree. Same. So, so do our Instagram followers. So that's good. Yeah. Um, all right. So now we're switching gears a, a little bit. We always ask this question to our guests. What is it that you are currently geeking out about? And it's ideally not something like gender equity or web comics or web comics <laughs> or writing <laughs> for example felicia and i now 11 months later geek out about animal crossing because we're old because <laughs> we're late to the party very late so i love airbnb online experiences yes yeah, so do we what's your favorite One yeah do you have recommendations you know, I like ones that you can do with other people. And yeah. so like my mom and I did one on Christmas day, since we couldn't be in the same place. I live in Washington DC and she lives in San Diego. And we took a cooking class making crepes with a woman in Paris. And my, my nephews who are seven years old and they live in Los Angeles and we did a magic show together. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. So that's, that's been my favorite part of it is just and what are the things we wouldn't have done before, but now we can do. I love that. It, now it, I, I feel like I know <laughs> like I'm hungry now, but I, I really yeah. feel like your, your, your theme is like learning and doing, and it's, uh, it's great. I love that approach. Yeah. Um, so in addition to geeking out, would love to know if you have like a piece of advice that you would like to give to people who are thinking, okay, what can I do in this world to make it a little bit better and brighter? Any, any nuggets of advice to share with our listeners? Breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so real. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I, one of the best things I've done ever is a silent meditation retreat. Ooh, for and how long? I've done a week. Wow, that's awesome. Wow. My husband would love that. If, sorry, I don't mean gender, but you know, I do talk a lot. So <laughs> I, great. does this yeah. say something about me where my immediate reaction to that, Rachel, was more a reflection on him versus on you? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, that's why you're my partner. <laughs> nice. Um, that's brilliant. It's, I, I, I don't know what I could do. That would be a heck of a challenge, but I love that. And I think that's excellent advice. We talk a lot about breathing, certainly, especially over this past year. Um, and there's one final question. What's currently making you happy or something that you would recommend? Um, you know, podcast, a book other than yours, not that there's any better book to read, a Netflix show or a movie. 
Anything you'd recommend? I have so many. I, I, I do watch a lot of TV. And so whenever anyone asks me that for TV recommendations, I have a hard time because it's like, well, what genre are you looking for? What movie? <laughs> what suggestion I will what give was the last? Friends. What was the last thing you watched? That you enjoyed. That you enjoyed. And it can be something that is not cool. Because that's how we roll. So I love everything on Apple TV and I think not enough people have discovered Apple TV yet, mm -hmm. but I got it for free with a recent phone I purchased and like literally everything on Apple TV. So I don't even know how to pick, but Ted Lasso is great. I was going to say Ted Lasso has got to be on that yeah, list. <laughs> the best. Dickinson is great. Um, what's the one about the podcaster? Truth be told. Oh, I don't know. I've only, I don't either. I've only seen two things on Apple TV and that's the morning show and Ted Lasso. And I enjoyed the morning both. show. Also good. Yeah. Everything there is good. Okay, so we'll put in the notes just to subscribe to Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then thank you so much for that, Melanie. Beyond that, um, where can people find you um, beyond leaning in? What else? How would you like to plug? all that good stuff, um, share all that with our listeners so they can also read and check you out and all the good things. Yeah, you can find uh, me, my book, my web comics, my podcasts, my, I don't know what else, thoughts on life <laughs> at www.beyondleaningin.com and connect with me on all the social medias. That's awesome. very exciting. And it's probably worth mentioning that we are going to be doing a special contest. So which will be available to folks when this is out um, in March 2021. Um, that will be uh, giving away some of Melanie's books. So if you like to, if you want to get a free ver a free book, you can come to Instagram.com slash she geeks out and it will will support all the things. Um, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much, Melanie. We really appreciate the time. Thank yeah, you. Thank it was you. so great to be here. So fun to talk to you. Yay. 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 Thanks to all our listeners for spending some time geeking out with us. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review helps. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next interview. And tell all your friends. New episodes drop every Tuesday. <laughs> Check us out at She Geeks Out on all the things. And in case you're wondering what those things are, they are Twitter, Insta, FB, otherwise known as Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, of course. Bye, Rachel. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia.